I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist. Today on the show, we're highlighting great stories from indie podcasts. Have you ever come home from a camping trip or a hike in the woods feeling rejuvenated and at peace with yourself? It's a pretty common trope. Person goes out to the forest, a biblical desert, or maybe the sea, and they come back with a deeper understanding about humanity and the challenges of life. For Sarah Dealey, a wilderness therapy program helped her heal from a severe bout of depression. It motivated her to turn her life around and become the outdoors woman of her dreams. But Sarah had always been an indoor kid. Sarah hated rock climbing and those weird toe shoes that are supposed to be good for your feet. She preferred long baths and air conditioning. In this episode of the podcast Out There, Sarah tells us a story about how messy and unglamorous healing can be. I've always been an indoor kid. I never scraped my knees climbing trees. Never got a rope burn on a tire swing. I never came home to my mother, covered in dirt, needing to be hosed off before I was allowed in. I grew up in Colorado, and while other kids spent their summers jumping into rivers, I spent mine in the cool basement of my childhood home, eating kettle corn, watching movies, and reading exactly 34 volumes of Magic Treehouse books. I was never athletic, always a bit chubby with no hand-eye coordination. Once, I had to write an apology note to my phys ed teacher because instead of trying to hit the softball that was pitched to me, I screamed and ran away every time. Despite the forced note, I wasn't remorseful. I was confident in my choice to stay inside. I liked air conditioning. I liked reading. I liked reading in the air conditioning. I spent high school and middle school happily inside at an art school where there weren't even sports teams, so I was fine. But when I started college, something shifted, and I became incredibly depressed. Every day, I would wake up very unhappy about being awake, and my whole motivation would be to make sure I could lie down. After a few years of this, I dropped out and went home. The indoors had warped. It was no longer a place of comfort and peaceful solitude. Now being inside was a symbol of my depression. It was all crumpled sheets littered with crumbs, blinds closed to keep out the afternoon sun, 
a window AC unit that wasn't cooling the room well enough. I had nowhere I felt safe. After a while of being home, it was pretty clear that I needed serious help, and a therapist I was seeing recommended I go to residential treatment. I was given three options. One, farming therapy, a place where you literally worked through your depression on a farm. I guess the seeds were a metaphor, and eventually you would grow into a beautiful, functioning, happy stock of corn. Two, residential therapy, which is similar to rehab, but it's just for depressed people. You sit in group therapy for hours a day inside a hospital-like building. Or three, wilderness therapy, where you hiked off your depression, carrying everything on your back and sleeping on the ground until you weren't sad anymore. I chose wilderness therapy because it sounded like something my indoor kid self would never choose to do. I felt like my indoor mentality had brought me to this place, and I hated myself for that. So I went into the woods as an attempt to exercise myself from the inside demon that had rotted my life. I remember talking to an admin lady for the program on speakerphone before I left. My mom asked how long I would have to stay. An average stay is 5 to 12 weeks she said. You'll probably stay for five weeks, my mom said. I think you're just five weeks up. And so five weeks up became our motto. We said it to each other in the car on the way to the airport and on the last call I could make before I had to turn off my phone. I was five weeks up. I wouldn't be staying for months like the kids who really needed it. I'd be turned around in no time. In reality, though, I ended up staying for 12 weeks, a decision I didn't really have a lot of choice in. I was 20 when I went to wilderness therapy, so I couldn't be forced to go. If you're under 18, it is legal for your parents to hire people to blindfold you, stick you in the back of a van, and drive you to wilderness therapy. But for me... It was a choice I made myself. I felt empowered that I got to choose to do this really hard thing. I figured I was in the driver's seat of my own recovery, and I wouldn't have to do anything too uncomfortable. This ended up being far from the truth. When I got off the plane in Utah, I was greeted by two late 20-somethings, a man and a woman. They looked like the kind of people who ran the climbing wall at REI. Already I felt nervous. Where I grew up in Denver, the REI has a giant climbing wall. I'd spent a lot of time in my youth in this store, mostly drinking frappuccinos and the Starbucks attached to it, but also looking at the climbing wall longingly knowing that my shrimpy little arms could never get me up it. And suddenly, there I was, in the tiny airport in St. George, Utah, being guided by two muscly, tan, 
Patagonia-wearing people who could probably climb that wall in a minute flat with a bad flu. I felt like that little girl again. But they were nice, and they drove me to get lunch and then took me to their headquarters, which was tucked away in a strip mall and filled with brand new outdoor gear and clothes. When we entered the small building, the tone changed. We were the only ones in there. The man excused himself to the bathroom, and the woman took me behind a shelf and told me to take off all my clothes and squat. I hated the moment where she had to look at my non-athletic, plushy body, scanning me for hidden drugs. I exhaled. Then she handed me brand new clothes. Tan cargo pants and a bright orange t-shirt. We got in the car and drove to the edge of town, where they blindfolded me with a bright yellow bandana. Sorry, they said, tying the knot around the back of my head. This is just what we have to do. We drove for what felt like hours through bumpy, dusty dirt roads until they parked and walked me, holding both of my hands through an uneven patch of desert. I realized I was walking towards voices. The voices seemed to be making dinner. One voice noticed me. Another voice, deeper, told the first voice to stop noticing me and keep making dinner. That was a clip from Indoor Kid, an episode of the podcast Out There. Out There is hosted and produced by Willow Belden. The story Indoor Kid was written, produced, and sound designed by Sarah Dealey. Story editing by Willow Belden. Our next podcast poses a really interesting question. Can the power of voice lead to a deeper connection? I'm from Canada. Raised by a single mom. Have an older sister. She's my rock. She's my everything. How do you travel as partners when one person makes significantly more than the other? What is your perspective towards polyamory or open relationship? Yeah, that's a that's a rough topic. Sex. That was the last thing I wrote down. Yeah, lots to say here. Those are the voices of some of the participants in the podcast, Nice to Hear You. It's an audio-only matchmaking experiment based on the exchange of voice memos. Host and creator Heather Lee was in a dating funk when she came up with the idea, and in her experiment, there are no names exchanged, no pictures, and no direct contact between the couples. The only way they get to know each other is by sending one voice memo a day for 30 days. Here's Heather with more on how she developed Nice to Hear You. So I thought, what if I made an alternative? In one of my Googling rabbit holes, I came across research that said, we find people with whom we share an emotional connection as more physically attractive. So this made me wonder, what if I reverse the order of how we become attracted to someone? Emotional connection first, then physical attraction. Could that lead to a deeper, more sustainable connection? Basically, the reverse order of online dating. I kept thinking about these voice memos. 
the ones from Chester. They made me feel so much more connected to him. I wondered, could the power of voice unlock vulnerability? So here's my idea. I'd find strangers who are single, match them, and have them exchange voice memos with each other for 30 days. The twist, they can only hear each other's voices. No pictures, no names, no one would be able to Google each other. Nothing seems normal these days. Going to the grocery store is an event. I only get dressed to get the mail. I haven't touched anyone in over a month. Nothing requires me to go outside. I go out with no destination in mind, only to preserve my sanity. Under these circumstances, my unconventional dating experiment fit right in. We're all strangers. And we're all alone, living in this once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic. But we're in this together, and we all want to connect. Maybe that's why my participants were game for it. I named my project, It's Nice to Hear You. So I decided to test out my idea. I set up a janky Google form with a few basic questions, like age, city, occupation. The most important one is the last one. What have you learned about yourself in quarantine? This question was required to be answered by uploading a voice recording. A couple friends shared my form on their Instagram. The very next day, on a Thursday afternoon in late March 2020, I received my first response from a total stranger. During quarantine, I've really learned to appreciate just having a few moments by myself. It's nice to be able to take time to pause and reflect on where you are, what you're doing, or what the next thing you need to accomplish might be without interruptions and without, you know, any kind of distractions. So, it's while I miss people <laughs> and I miss being around those social environments, this has definitely been a really good reflection period and a chance to kind of learn more about what I appreciate and just value the time to just be quiet and to reflect and to think about you know, who you are and where you're going. So just having to be constantly busy, busy, busy. He just sounded so sincere and familiar. I didn't know anything about his physical appearance, yet I liked him. Immediately. All of my single female friends wanted to date him. But why? In the animal world, birds and other mammals have long been known to advertise their physical characteristics based on how they sound through their mating calls. This is also true in the human world. Biologically, we find people more attractive because we're drawn to physical traits that signal strong health and reproductive potential. But what about people who sound attractive? Researchers from University College London asked heterosexual women and men to rank a bunch of different voices. High-pitched female voices and deep male voices were deemed the most attractive. Men who have a deep voice and a touch of breathiness 
this whispery, murmuring quality, were deemed even more attractive. So somewhere deep in our subconscious, guided by our biology, the way someone sounds may also be influencing who we find attractive. So back to this mystery guy. Maybe subconsciously it was his breathiness that caught our ears, but consciously, I think it was because he showcased feelings. Pretty soon, I got more responses. The others were equally thoughtful and intimate. So maybe this experiment is going to work. People actually signed up and wanted to meet other people this way. These are real people, not on a reality TV show. Real people in real life. These people who filled out my form are strangers. But when I listened to their messages, it sounded like they're only speaking to me. It transported me, and I felt connected. So, this is how I found my quarantine calling. Being the type A organized matchmaker that I am, I came up with a plan. So, I matched the participants with each other, and they are given the opportunity to exchange voice memos with their match for 30 days. There's no direct communication between the pairs. They send and receive everything through me. They can only communicate with their match by sending voice memos. There are no names. Everyone chooses a letter to ensure that no one can Google each other. There is no disclosure of any personally identifiable information. After receiving my very first response, I spent the better part of April creating a website, improving my application form, and trying to find single people on the internet. There are over 30 million people using dating apps in the U.S., two-thirds of whom are under 45. There is already a loneliness epidemic, and we're all stuck inside now. How hard could it be to persuade some of these lonely single people to participate? I looked for people ages 25 to 45, and I decided on getting 100 singles. I figured this would be enough to buffer for drop-off. 100. A nice, round number. But it turns out, I totally underestimated the challenge of finding single people to participate in an anonymous matchmaking experiment. Lots of things I tried, like Instagram ads, Craigslist posts, got banned. But eventually, I started to receive submissions. I'm an only child. My parents shared custody of me. I was 11. I wound up graduating with a degree in psychology. But I quickly realized... A minor in architecture. So fashion was kind of where I I I ended up. I had a problem. I had way too many women. This is interesting because on most dating apps, men outnumber women... By a lot. The stats are a bit gray depending on the app and geography. But when it comes to the U.S., a conservative estimate is that there is one woman to every three men on most dating apps. At this point, I have about four women for every one man. So I need to find a solution to my problem with men. Story of my life. I posted on Facebook groups like Conscious Listening and Authentic Relating Communities. 
I tried to catfish guys on my personal dating app profile and maxed out my right swipes until I got banned. It was worth a try. I asked my male friends about what accounts they were following. You open up my Reddit account. Uh, alphabetically, the first one is 90 Day Fiance. That's a very important one. Oh, aged like wine and aged like milk. I reached out to those accounts to see if they can share my experiment so I can get in front of those elusive men that I need. Let me check out my Instagram accounts. Long Island memes. That's embarrassing. Something that's just called moist. Cities by the slice. Everything is terrible. 666. Bunch of different slices of pizza. I even found someone whose full-time job was to recruit single men for a matchmaking company to help me out. Eventually, I did get 100 people including single men. That was It's Nice to Hear You. It was hosted, written, and produced by Heather Lee. Their team includes Morgan Foos, Katya Stepanoff, Jesse Carey, Camila Kerwin, Max Miller, and Stephanie Fu. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist. Some of the hardest promises to keep are the promises we make to ourselves. You know the ones. I'm going to give up coffee for green tea. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to become a morning person. But when Shannon Kaysen made a promise to himself, he decided nothing would stop him. What was that promise? Well, he decided to run a marathon, even if he had to crawl across the finish line. In this clip from his podcast, Shannon Kaysen's Homemade Stories, we'll hear how the marathon went. Oh, and I should mention that Shannon has a bit of a fear of marathon runners. He thinks they might be aliens trying to suck him into their alien orgy-having lifestyle, just to give you some context. Let's take a listen. Yeah, I took my mom to my first marathon. It's like this. Wherever I go, anywhere special, I think of my mom. And my mom being there will ensure that I don't get lured into any crazy marathon cult orgy activities. I know something more is going on in the running with these alien-like people. I know it. We drove from Detroit to Columbus. Short drive. And the marathon was going to happen the next day. Columbus is actually pretty nice. At least the area we were in. As soon as we got to Columbus, I checked into the hotel I unloaded everything, including my mom, and I left to make it to the marathon orientation for a pre-race spaghetti dinner. There was a lot of old-faced people slurping down pasta. Kind of disgusting, but I, I joined in too. I'm all in. I'm just not doing the high stamina, alien sex weirdness that's going to go on, but I'm running the marathon. I went back to the hotel afterwards to rest, hang out with my mom for a little bit, and get a good night's sleep. Next day was race day. I got a late start the day of the race. So I darted out of the hotel to make it to the starting location in time to run. I'll be back, Ma. A few things I wasn't informed about or I didn't pay attention to. Even though it was cold, this was in October, but when I start running, my body temperature would rise very quickly. And as the day continued, did it get warmer and warmer? So I didn't need the full tracksuit that I was wearing. Also, maybe I only trained for a half marathon. I didn't know you can cut it in half like that, honestly. 
Also, the start location and the ending location may not be the exact same location. I parked in the first open space I found and actually ran to the starting line to start on time. So when they shot the gun to start running, I was already tired. Mile three, I was burning up in a Nike tracksuit. I took the whole suit off. Thank goodness I had shorts and a tank top underneath or I'd have been running in jockey underwear shirtless holding a paper number in my hand. I just threw the suit to the side of the road, a donation to somebody. Mile 10. This was the gist of my training. If I was training for a 10-mile run, I won. I would have done a half marathon at a good pace with good energy if I knew there was a such thing as half marathons. Everything after mile 10 was total willpower with Peter J. Daniels screaming in my ear. Even if it hurts, especially when Mile it hurts. 15. I saw the people who were done after their half marathon and I was extremely jealous. I was deaf, running. My calves and thighs were cramping. I started to run, walk, hobble, walk, walk, crawl, mile 20. At this point, I was running in the afterlife. I didn't understand how I was still standing, much less moving. How the f did Oprah do one of these? I know I'm in better shape than Oprah. Mile 25. My legs were numb. I had moved past cramping calves and thighs to a paralyzed automaton. I'm from Detroit and I was moving forward like Robocop. I was a zombie that had been bitten by a Peter J. Daniels sermon. Your word should be your bond, even if it hurts, especially when it hurts. I have to finish what I started to keep my promise to myself. I must keep my promise to myself. The finish line. On the last mile, I could see the marathon staff and volunteers were beginning to wrap up everything, folding up tables and putting away materials and rolling up signs. I did see one sign that was left behind, leaned against a tree. It said, finish strong. It inspired me to run the last mile past the finish line. Well, hobble the last mile, let me be honest. Many old-faced aliens were still waiting at the finish line. They were so welcoming. Everyone was smiling and clapping. They put a medal around my neck. It was all hugs. They invited me into the fold. These were my people. I still didn't want any parts of the alien sex cult stuff, but all in all, these were really good people. I did it. I kept my promise to myself. Okay, where did I park? Hello. Hey, Mama Dears. Hi, Shannon. How are you? Goody, goody, two shoes. Nothing like hearing your voice. You remember uh, coming to the marathon with me when I had to run that marathon? I sure do. How could I forget? We were in Columbus, Ohio at a little uh, one of those uh, malls. The whole reason I brought you was so you could 
kind of watch me after the marathon because they say you need somebody to kind of watch you, make sure that you, uh, you know, don't have cardiac arrest or something like that. And where yeah, but I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know that's what I was supposed to be there Because I came. I thought I was going on a little variety trip for myself. Because when I came back from the marathon, I, first I couldn't find my car. I couldn't find my, I, I in the marathon and I couldn't find my car because it wasn't, it didn't end where I started and I had ran to get there. So I get, I finally found my car. The people which, helped me find my car. Which took forever. Which yeah. took forever. Yeah, yeah. They they helped me find my car, find my car. <laughs> and I get back to the hotel and I'm exhausted. <laughs> and where where were you, ma? <laughs> I was out. <laughs> I was literally out shopping, having a ball. <laughs> that was a clip from Shannon Kaysen's homemade stories. The show is created, hosted, written, and produced by Shannon Kaysen. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist. Next in our lineup of indie podcasts, a show about the brutally honest process of healing from addiction. We can't actually say the full name of the show on the radio, so we'll just call it Effing Sober, The First 90 Days. It features music, voices, and writing by creatives in recovery. Their new season follows Betsy, a suburban housewife from Needham, Massachusetts, who seemingly has a picture-perfect life with her husband and three children. But after blacking out at a friend's Thanksgiving Day party, Betsy asks her husband for help. Let's take a listen. Bets. Betsy. I glance up at my husband, who is looking at me across the sterile, dark kitchen, waiting for an answer. Betsy. On the counter next to my husband is a row of 15 liquor bottles awaiting execution. They are lined up by height. I squeeze my knees harder into my chest as I balance on our Serena and Lily stool. You ready? It all feels like some strange ceremony, as if the next steps require us to burn sage and say a weird prayer. Sure. He picks up the bottle of Tito's, the same bottle that I was drinking from yesterday, the largest and emptiest of the lineup. Goodbye, Tito's. Tito's. The perfect vodka for mixed drinks, a year-round beverage, from lemonades to martinis to hot chocolate, and of course, always good for a last-minute shot. So long. I realize I'm witnessing the love of my life. What? Pour out the other greatest love of my life. And I find the whole thing absurd. What? 
This wonderful man that once stood with tears in his eyes what? as I walked down the aisle 10 years ago now leans hunched over a kitchen sink, what? holding with both hands a gigantic plastic liquor bottle. What are you laughing at? Nothing. Um. <laughs> um. You okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. One down. He takes the now empty bottle of Tito's and marches it to the end of the line. Matt grabs the next bottle, Malibu rum. I stare at the bottle as he tips the palm tree label upside down, a warm breeze mixed with banana boat sunscreen, an adult's only vacation. I bought this bottle as an attempt to bring the beach back to our suburban home after an argument between Matt and I. A lazy attempt to get back to a happier us. Happier us. Cheers to 10 years, babe. And uh, I think we need another round. I'll be right back. I can feel the warm Bermuda sun on my face and the buzz of my first drink settling in. Right before taking off towards the beach bar, he kisses me, making his blue eyes light up. 10 years of marriage is a long time. Yet getting back to moments like this, getting back to us, makes my belly tingle. But I had had this plan for as long as I could remember. And here I am living my literal dream. By age of 10, I had all the details mapped out right down to the beach wedding and sequined gown with large puffy sleeves. My husband would be a cross between Tom Cruise from Top Gun and Rob Lowe from Youngblood. I needed to marry young so I could have kids young, three kids to be exact. Having kids young would be easier on my body. And I was going to be a cool hip mom. That was on board with creating the life I had always imagined. We said I do beside the ocean in Nantucket five years after graduation. A beach wedding with candles and mason jars and a steel drum band. It was perfect. I decided to try the uh, Malibu rum swizzle this time. Oh, thank you. Island specialty. And it comes with a cute umbrella too. Matt kisses me on the lips again, his mouth lingering this time. We smile at each other. Mm, I think I like the rum swizzle. This moment brought to you by alcohol. Oh, I wish this wasn't our last night. <laughs> we could have good moments like this when we could focus on one another when we escaped reality. We could ignore the fact that recently, when at home, we spent most of our time arguing over who cleans up the kitchen or folds the laundry or why there were three empty bottles of wine in the recycling bin and it was only Tuesday. On vacation, we were on an equal playing field. Taxi to Ocean Bay. Until we weren't. Yes. And might I say you two make a fine couple. Thank you. Oh, where did you get that? From the mini fridge. Are you going to drink that now? You don't even like beer. We should uh, we should get you some water. Are you serious? Sir, do you, do you, of course do you have I like beer. Since when? Since always. We should, uh, we should get you some water. Wait, you were just drinking with me like two seconds ago back on the beach. Matt was the first one to order afternoon cocktails on the beach earlier today. Yesterday, he brought me a mimosa to my pool chair for breakfast. We've spent lazy afternoons in bed in a booze-filled haze having more sex than we've had in years. Yeah, but Betsy... But now, suddenly, he thinks I've hit my limit. Taking a beer in the cab? Why does he get to decide when I've had enough? I don't know. It's just, um... 
just seems excessive. Why are you suddenly being like this? I just... I want you to remember our dinner tonight. I take a long, drawn-out sip from my beer. That's... I don't want to fight about this. It's fine. Let's just... Let's just have some fun on our last night. I look out the window a bit longer. There is so much to say. But we both don't say it. Not here. Not home. Not ever. Okay fine. I let him hold my hand as he slides closer to me in the seat, allowing this cycle to repeat. That was a clip from the latest season of Effing Sober, the first 90 days, from Somehow 9am Productions. Their team includes Kate Siegel, Otis Gray, Sox Whitmore, Brian Fitzgerald, Tawny Laura, Sean Jessime, MJ Hova, Dylan Heap, Katie Mack, Kimberly Kearns, Brianna Janae, and Ewan Newbinging Lister. This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Next up, we're showing love for some fantastic Canadian podcasters. Coming to us from Toronto is This Isn't Therapy, a podcast about all the stuff people are talking to their therapists about. Each episode, social worker and psychotherapist Jake Ernst and filmmaker Simon Pollock demystify therapy concepts and apply them to real-life scenarios. This episode was prompted by a listener who felt that their friends didn't value them. And in this clip, Jake and Simon unravel the concept of mattering. Have a listen. Let's revisit the question. So, friends are blowing me off. Do I say something? Yes. To me, this does surface that question of mattering, right? And I think it kind of brings up that definition of mattering, which I would define as mattering is basically just a feeling or a sense of meaningful significance. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us know already kind of what that feels like and what that feels like to matter. But I don't know a lot of us can connect it to our life experiences. What do you think? Connecting it to life experiences, like the sense of like mattering. Sometimes it feels like it's one of those invisible operating things that until someone asks us or until it's like brought to the forefront, that we're like, oh, right, I don't feel like I matter. Yeah, I feel like it's the absence of it is the thing that kind of is the the telltale of, wait, hold on a second, something's missing here. It's like a piece of furniture in your house that you're just used to seeing mm-hmm. or having all the time. And then when it's when it's moved, you're like, oh, wait, wasn't there, a, wasn't there like a lazy boy sofa here? Right. You're like, where did it go? Where did it go? Hold on a second. There's I a vacancy here. <laughs> there's, a fa- there's something absent. Yeah. What is this? Is and this a, is, did someone rob me? Is, am I, it, did it get stolen? Did it get stolen? <laughs> And yeah. so when when these sort of problems reinvent themselves in the therapy room, as we were talking about last week, a lot of our patterns come with us mm-hmm. into new relationships. And of course, that comes into therapy too. And so when someone is sharing a story or sharing an experience that they had in therapy, I'm also listening in the background for those sort of themes that are operating under the surface. Right. And one of them is mattering. Does this person feel like they matter? Does this person feel like they're important? Right. Does this person feel like they're needed or significant to the people around them? And sometimes it just takes 
someone to notice that pattern and, and to bring that up, right? And so I want to also just surface another three-parter, three, okay. three concepts that uh, can orient our focus back to this concept of mattering. And so number one, uh, excuse me, to practice the um, the concept of mattering, number one, we want to ensure that other people are, we can notice each other. When we don't notice, like we were saying, when it kind of flies under the radar, it goes invisible, mm-hmm. then it just operates out of our range of focus and out of our consciousness. And so the number one thing is to start with is noticing, like, does this person feel like they matter to me? Does this person feel like they're important? And do I feel like I'm important to this person? Wait, so what does that look like? Like, give me an example of what that like translates to. Well, I, th- I think it kind of comes back to those like little moments, right? That we've talked about for decades on this podcast. Decades, yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> for decades. For decades. <laughs> We're in our centennial now. So yeah. it's been decades. So it's been decades. Yes. Um, this, this, it's the little moments, right? Little moments of little check-ins, little moments of noticing. Okay. Uh, for people who follow me on Instagram, you'll know that I'm a big fan of noticing. Noticing. Yes, we want to notice small moments. I think that is so important, not just from like a mindfulness perspective, right. but from that like connection standpoint, right? And being able to kind of feel like, yeah, we matter to somebody else. And I feel like I'm significant and vice versa. We also talked about last week about reciprocity. And Mm -hmm. that is what this looks like, is the give and the take. So I'm noticing when Mm -hmm. you don't feel like you matter. And I'm hoping that you will also notice when I don't as well. Mm. So it's in the back and forth. So the exercise here is almost like, hi, Wendy, just checking in. Yeah. Or, hey, I really appreciated those muffin tops. You, You baked me. They're delicious. Thank you so much. You're such a chef. Like that's an example of me telling Wendy that she matters. Why did that hit me in such a way? That just hit my funny bone. And I, <laughs> you are such a silly sausage. Uh, that's really funny. Sizzle, sizzle. Sizzle, sizzle, baby. And so the second one is that we also want to communicate our noticing and to communicate other people's significance to us. Okay. And so it's, yes, of course, it's the noticing and then it's the check-in. But it's also adding some meat to that uh, conversation of it, right? Okay. Something like, hey, I noticed when you sent me those muffin tops. Yeah. That really means a lot to me. Thank yeah. you for doing that. Yeah. I'm Next s- time, don't do blueberry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you insignificant. Yeah, you insignificant piece of <laughs> And then I throw them back in Wendy's face. <laughs> yes. That's what I do, like, right? You matter nothing. You matter me. nothing. Like crumb by crumb. <laughs> yes. I throw them at you. Yeah. And so in a different universe, we yeah. probably would say something like, yeah, for sure. That means a lot to me. And I'm so glad that you're in my life. Okay. Right? That shows someone that they are significant yeah. and that they matter. Okay. Um, and that their presence is important. Right. Okay. And that their actions are felt and that their actions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Keep going. That their actions mean a lot to you. Right. Right. Um, and so we're obviously talking about hashtag social skills yeah. um, on one hand, but we're also talking about, I think the really difficult um, work of connecting with people. I think it's easy to give people a script, but it's a lot harder to put that script into practice. Yeah. I feel like there's also like a vulnerability that goes into admitting that someone impacted you. Mm -hmm. Like to just be like, oh, "Oh, that actually made me feel really special. Because I think sometimes like the insignificant, I'm doing air quotes. Yeah. The insignificant actions or the smaller deeds that people do for us. Yes. Sometimes we don't want to admit that it's like, oh, that actually meant like more than you thought it was. Yes. And I can see how that's hard to do. Which so is, Wendy, you oh. walking over, making me blueberry mu- muffin tops, like it actually 
means made a lot. me feel very special. Yeah. And I and I and when you say that out loud, I think it kind of can sometimes feel silly. Do you know like, where I often err? What? Where I often get it wrong is I often think these thoughts in my head, but I never verbalize them. And so there are times when I yeah. hold positive thoughts or I have, you know, positive memories of people or I think like, oh, that I'm really happy that happened or I'm yeah. glad they did that or said that. And then I don't say it and then I don't like actually bring it into the relationship. Yeah. I just keep it in my brain and think that that is the work, yeah. right? That like, oh, I'm grateful or I'm practicing gratitude and yeah. it's in my journal. So that's the mattering. Yeah. But I think it's a relational component, right? Where you bring it into real life. Yeah. You have to tell people. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I do the same thing. Which goes to the third component yeah. of practicing and cultivating mattering is to show people that they're needed. And I think that that is the core component there, which is to verbalize it, right? You have to actually talk about it and say it. And I wonder if we're also in this weird culture right now where we don't say compliments or praise or Mm. positive things about anyone or anything. It kind of seems as though we're really attracted to, well, what's the critique? What's the negative? What's the aspect of the relationship that I'm not so fond of, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that social media culture really plays into that too, where it's like, what's the red flag? Spot the problem. And we don't, you know, have a practice of showing people like, you matter to me. There are green flags here and I noticed them and Mm -hmm. I saw that action and that really, really impacted me and that matters a lot. Yeah, I think, but it's so hard, I think, in those moments when things are going good or like someone you know, offers like a nice gesture. I think it's like, oh, thanks. But can we just, don't. Can I just pause? So I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm so happy wrapping this conversation. This is making me like feel really good. I'm like, Are you doing it live? No, I'm just noticing. Yeah, I'm noticing. I'm oh, noticing like it actually feels really good to like name what we're naming, you know? Mattering. Yeah. And the small actions and moments. Yeah. But like you were saying, you. sorry, I interrupted. What was I saying? Um, You were talking just about that thing oh yeah 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 you know what makes me feel like i don't matter (laughs) this is when you when you interrupt me (laughs) no (laughs) but but true though that's tea is it that is probably tea probably yeah yeah when people feel interrupted all the time like i just did to you yeah yeah mademoiselle yeah i yeah of course that would make someone feel insignificant totally so maybe I am I allowed to, to talk? <laughs> Can I so talk? So maybe I did it on purpose. Yeah. What the <laughs> f- is this power play? Ah, <laughs> oh, get me out of this. This isn't therapy. Hole. Yes. Somebody save me. This is all going to cry for help. Okay. I've sprinkled a SOS message over mm. 102 episodes. <laughs> yes. So someone please figure it out. <laughs> someone and find please it. help me. Yeah. Help me. So um, let me pass the mic back. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I think the the to your point about it's it's very easy to vocalize criticism i think it's a cultural shift for us to sort of say like oh thank you but let me sort of vocalize or communicate how actually that really impacted me wow and i think that feels Mm -hmm. um new and it also kind of feels weird i have like weird feelings like i think about people who are sort of like naturally giving people like in my life who are um, always make me feel like I matter like most of the time right like your parents for example Mm -hmm. like they're kind of at least mine are kind of like a staple of like oh yeah they always make me you know like a reliable source of you mattering Mm -hmm. um but I don't I don't tell them that right and you kind of just go like yeah but that's just our relationship like we just don't talk about those things and I think maybe it's it's we got a shift into no. I actually think we have to start like naming things, 
and I think I default to like, oh no, they got it. Like they, they just know. know. They yeah. just know, but we don't know that. Yep. Right? Because even though we may be very close um, and we may be able to finish each other's sandwiches, it doesn't mean that yeah. they actually picked up on the phone. That, like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> no, Speaking I, of interrupting. I think you're, I think you're right. I did interrupt you again, um, but I do. I think you're right. I yeah. think that is hashtag relatable. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that unfortunately does really play itself out in relationships, right? Where people learn or mm-hmm. just tell themselves, I don't matter by default because I haven't seen evidence of mattering. Yeah. I haven't seen proof. That was a clip from This Isn't Therapy. The show is hosted by Jake Ernst and Simon Pollock and mixed by Jordan Pollock. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist. In October 2021, Michelle Friesen was elected as the first Indigenous woman to serve on the White Horse City Council. When her son Theo was born the next summer, Friesen didn't think twice about bringing him to the council chambers. But earlier this year, Friesen was caught off guard by a phone call with Mayor Laura Cabot. Cabot told Friesen that some councillors found her son's presence at meetings to be distracting. But Friesen pushed back and said that the criticism was unfair and non-inclusive to Indigenous perspectives. Friesen's story made the news this past March, and she since appeared on the Canadian podcast Matriarch Movement. It's hosted by Shayla Olette Stonechild and features stories of Indigenous women from across Canada, Turtle Island, and beyond. Here's a taste of their conversation. I adopted my son. And so, um, you know, I didn't have like a pregnancy or, you know, that time to like prepare or um, come up with a game plan. Right. And so it was only a few months before he was going to be born that we found out he was coming and then he was two months early on top of that. And so it it was like, I don't even remember now it was such a whirlwind, but I think it was like eight weeks or something between like when we found out he was coming and when he was here, once he was born and I was going back to council meetings, I just brought him, you know, I didn't really ask for permission, I guess. Um, I didn't really feel like I needed to. Yeah. So he just started coming with me. He came to every council meeting every Monday night. He came to like our intergovernmental meetings, you know, he was around the table with the ministers and it was really fun to have him there with me. And it felt really special to have him there with me. And it just made me feel so connected to my culture. And it made me feel so powerful to be there, like as a matriarch, as a mother, and just really like kind of paving the way for him 
but also I felt like it was such an important reminder of who we're making these decisions for. And when we're gone, like him and our other young people, they're the ones who are going to have to pick up this work and carry on with this work. And so I just felt like it was such an important reminder. And and then, of course, in our culture, the way that I've been taught, you know, is we came from a matriarchal system and our women were the ones who were making decisions and our children were always welcome in the room, right? That's the way they learn. And yeah, so I just felt like that was so important. And, and um, of course, there were some issues with that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just felt that it was important to bring a light to it when that happened, because I didn't want for this to just happen in silence. I just felt that it was very important, especially when I've been such a strong advocate for that representation piece and showing people that they deserve to be here and things like that, that it was important to then set that precedent and make, you know, set an example so that the next person wouldn't have to have the same conversations, you know, and so I was trying to make it it was one way that I saw that I could make the space more welcoming, more inclusive, more safe, right? By just taking away that one less hard conversation that the next person's going to have to have. And not even just for city council, right? But for any leadership role, right? Now they can say, oh, well, you know, Michelle and Theo were doing it. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so like, why can't that? we, right? And so <laughs> that was why I felt like it was really important to speak up and speak out and share that story. Yeah, no, I think it's also really important as kids, like as youth, like you had mentioned, like being in an environment um, and just witnessing what goes on, like you never really know how that's going to impact your child. Like maybe he's going to come on to be the next city council. Like you never really know what he's going to do with that. And I think it's inspirational to also see that represented within within city council. I think, do you know Larissa Crawford? Because she also does it with her daughter, Zyra. So oh, she was yeah, like, yeah, one yes. of, yeah. Yeah, I went to one of her uh, speeches and she had Zyra on stage with her and Zyra was probably like four, four years old. And I was like, wow, this is the first, that was my first time witnessing it. And I had even thought that it was an option at that point. So it does make a difference when you see it happen yourself. And I think it also makes a difference also within our communities because it shows reclamation of our teachings. And like you said, reclamation of what we've done before. And you brought up the term matriarchy. And I'm so curious, like how you would define the word matriarchy to yourself. Like what does being a matriarch look like to you? And who are matriarchs that you're currently inspired by? Oh, geez. Um, I think like I used to kind of think of, of, of a matriarch as like a mother. But I think just through my leadership journey and just speaking with others and seeing how how inspiring people around me can be, I think that my definition of matriarch has really changed a lot. Being a matriarch is more just bringing people together, creating that sense of community, lifting others up around you. You know what, actually, somebody, a local artist here, did a a gallery. They have a gallery at our cultural center right now. It's called Matriarchs. And they put into words so well what I've been thinking for such a long time. So I'd actually really love to read this. It's um, by the curator Stormy Bradley. They're a Trondic Huachin First Nation citizen. And so it says, interpretations of matriarchy are just as varied as the cultures within the nations. What does it mean to be a matriarch? 
In a broad Indigenous context, a matriarch isn't necessarily a mother. It is someone in the community who has taken on the role of nurturing and supporting the youth, as well as maintaining cultural practices and knowledge. Matriarchs are mentors, mothers, sisters, aunties, trans or two-spirit leaders, artisans, and friends. A matriarch is someone who becomes directly a part of the intergenerational stream of knowledge which is passed from individual to individual. They are both the stream of knowledge and the carrier. That's so beautiful. I know, That's also how beautiful. I view it. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, you think of motherhood, but then you also think of like giving back to your community and also that word that you used at the beginning, nourishment, like nourishing others. Yeah. That's how I think of it too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of course. That was Matriarch Movement. It's hosted by Shayla Olette Stonechild. That episode was produced by Katie Lore. The episode's guest was city councillor for the city of Whitehorse, Michelle Friesen. You can check out all the podcasts we feature today by going to cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. And if you have any recommendations for us, send them our way. You can find us on Facebook at CBC Podcast Playlist or send us an email at podcastplaylist at cbc.ca. Podcast Playlist is Sam McNulty, Kelsey Cueva, and Julian Uzielli. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. I'm going to check out the intro to Shannon Kaysen's Homemade Stories, which is hilarious. You should listen to it. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.